Hi everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Finance Podcast, a podcast to help simplify and educate Generation Z students about the complex concepts of business. In today's episode, we have a very special guest, Victor Chen, the Vice President of Capital G, formerly known as Google Capital. Victor graduated from UC Berkeley and began his career as an associate at Goldman Sachs and later transitioned into venture capital. In this episode, Victor and I will talk about the basics of investment banking and venture capital. We will discuss the main concepts behind investment banking and venture capital, how venture capital firms value companies, diversification and investment portfolio, the idea of risk, risk and return trade-off, his experiences working for Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, and Google. So without further ado, let's just get started. Victor, thank you for joining our podcast today. Our listeners are very excited to learn about private equity and a little bit about venture capital. Uh, so to start it off, could you please tell us a little bit about your college to your uh, experiences in investment banking, private equity, and including how you become interested in finance? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and thanks, Logan, for having me on the podcast. And um, really excited to be sharing some of, uh, or at least some potential insight here. Um, in terms of my background, um, maybe to talk about why I got into finance, uh, I'd probably have to start from high school. And so, you know, um, from high school, I think my parents had always thought about uh, pushing me in the direction of being an engineer or being a doctor. It's it's pretty stereotypical for, for most Asian families. But I think um, what got me interested in finance was um, in 08 and 09, um, obviously, the economy was in the U.S. was was really struggling from the financial crisis. And at, the, at that period in time, my dad, who's also an engineer, um, ended up losing his job. And so um, having been been put on the path to, to be, you know, um, an engineer, taking a bunch of STEM classes, a bunch of, you know, focus on math and et cetera, I always thought, like, how could it be, you know, that that the economy is so bad that even engineers can't find a job? And from that, from, from that moment on, I just really sought to learn about what was going on um, really tried to understand what was going on in the world, um, which really caused, you know, this hardship for my family. And the more and more I read about economics and the more I, I learned about finance and the financial sector and sort of what, um, what these folks do on, on a day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis, that's what I started really getting business from, um, you know, financial statements and whatnot. And eventually it came to the point where I realized there are a lot of things in life that can be explained through finance and financial incentives. And so, from that, from that point on, um, I decided that I wanted to sort of not be an engineer and not be a doctor, but rather um, become a be, become a sort of expert in finance. And, and that really continued throughout college. So I, I um, went to college at UC Berkeley uh, and uh, ended up majoring in economics. And I think that, you know, some of the key things to highlight about school, um, obviously Berkeley is a, a, a top-ranked university, but I think what people forget is that the community of students is also just really, really exceptional. And so finding the right communities where, where you know, um, you can learn the right fundamentals together is something that's really important, especially in the world of business where, you know, network really matters. And so um, within Berkeley, I joined a couple of organizations, um, some of which were, you know, completely business focused, some of which were, were a little more social. Um, and uh, continue to sort of work really hard at, at uh, honing my skills on what I would need to to eventually break into finance. And that meant taking a bunch of finance classes, learning how to do Excel modeling, um, 
doing case competitions where, you know, investment banks would potentially would, would come to school and host these competitions where they would simulate a, a, a deal or um, a, a, an investment where you as a student would have to figure out how to do, you know, what a banker would do in day to day and present a case. And so I did a lot of that. And, and eventually, you know, um, that led into a pretty great opportunity to to work at Goldman Sachs out of college where, you know, that was my first real full time job. Um, and obviously there were a lot of internships along the way that helped get me there and teach me the skills to excel there. Um, but that was sort of my path into finance. Um, and eventually, you know, uh, banking obviously teaches you a bunch of skills. Uh, you get your feet wet. You learn about the basics of financial analyses um, and finance theory. Um, and uh, from that point on, it was really off to the races and thinking about what's next. And, and you know, every every banker typically, or not every banker, but most bankers typically think about joining investing with the buy side. And so I took that step as well and ended up joining Capital G about five years ago. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, now, kind of moving on to the private equity venture capital sector. Uh to start off, you've had the opportunity, you know, to work in wealth management, investment banking, and private equity. So, why did you decide to leave Goldman and go to Capital G? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, a few reasons. I think um, I have a pretty unique story here, um, and I say unique. It's not really a unique story, but I guess it's unique from my my analyst class. Where, if you look at most analyst classes in banking, what what you realize is that you know most of the analysts end up leaving for private equity with and, and they end up signing their offers within the first year of investment banking. And I went into banking with the approach thinking that I'd probably stay in banking for a really long period in time. And so I never actually signed an offer to go anywhere um, until the very end of my analyst or uh, until I actually made associate. And so um, from the perspective, like when I was an associate, the biggest struggles for me um, were one, it's just I was uh, I was probably grinding a little too hard and I got a little burned out. And so I was working on a deal. Um, it was uh, eBay spinoff of PayPal where, you know, at the time it was 52 weeks and I had literally pulled an all-nighter every week for, for an entire year. And at that point, it was like you were feeling just terrible about yourself, even though you'd learned, learned a ton. And I think, you know, you were working on something that was, uh, that was super interesting. And I think I didn't know it at the time, but if you look at PayPal's market cap now and eBay's market cap now, like that transaction alone made investors, you know, four times or five times the amount of money that they could have. And so like, it's, it's really, really large impact, but um, at some point, you know, you just kind of have to prioritize other things. And so for me, it's like, you know, having a family, having kids, et cetera. I knew I just couldn't really sustain that lifestyle anymore. And so from that perspective, that was one reason why I decided to look for other things. Um, the second thing was, I think, you know, um, I was very curious because um, it seemed like, uh, investing was less hierarchical in structure, especially when you look at venture capital or, or you know, technology investing, where teams are generally even leaner than they are in banking. So in banking, I think my team typically is, you know, a partner, maybe two partners, an MD, a VP, an associate, and an analyst. And so it's at least six people, sometimes even more. Um, whereas in investing, the teams are partner, VP, principal, and associate. So it's really three layers. Like VP, principal is interchangeable. And so... Um, sometimes it's even two people. So it's like partner and associate or partner and VP running, running together on a deal. And so that really excited me because I felt like, Hey, I could take more ownership if that were the case. And, um, just, just looking at, uh, what some of my peers were able to do 
joining investing, I was like, hey, this might be something that I want to explore. It seems intellectually curious, intellectually interesting. Um, in fact, even more intellectually interesting than banking was. Um, and so from that perspective, that's what I that that's what made me really want to go and switch and explore. Great. So could I was I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, we often hear the term private equity and we hear the term venture capital. So I was wondering, could you explain what private equity is and its difference between venture capital? Or if yeah, there is absolutely. much of a difference, of course. Absolutely. So I think private equity, you know, there are different connotations and there are different actual definitions. I think, you know, if you were to look at the strict definition of private equity, venture capital would actually be classified as, you know, a type of private equity. And so what, what private equity really is, is just investing in private shares. Like equity is you would think about as ownership in your company. If it's not traded on the public markets, it would be private. And so in, if anyone has a private business that's not traded on a public market or index index somewhere, so if it's not on the NASDAQ, if it's not on NYSE, it's not on you know publicly traded in Hong Kong, um, that could be classified as private equity if you're investing in that company's shares. And so um, that's one definition of it. Venture capital is a type of private equity because what they're doing is they're investing in private technology companies, generally faster growth, riskier companies. And so it's a segment of it. Now, the connotation of private equity, if you say it in the industry, uh, typically people interpret that to mean buyout. Um, and so what that would look like um, are your typical sort of, you know, TPGs, KKRs of the world, where what they do is they still invest in private shares of a company. But instead of taking minority positions like you would in venture capital, they'll take they'll buy out the entire company. And they'll typically do that with the mix of their own capital and debt that they take on in order to purchase that company. And so that specific model is what a lot of the market refers to as private equity. Um, in in sort of a broad definitional perspective, theoretically, venture capital is a type of private equity. Okay. And I was uh, you talked about a buyout, right? So is a buyout when you buy 50 or 50% 50 of shares of a, a private company or does it have to be a full 100%? Uh, there's no set rule. Typically, it's interpreted as a majority stake, um, which would be 50% plus. But most companies do, or not, I, would, I shouldn't say most because that's not accurate, but a lot of companies do buy out 100%. Okay, great. So kind of going into a little bit about what Capital G is, can you elaborate on what Capital G does uh, versus a venture capital firm like Klanner Perkins? Yeah, absolutely. So Capital G, um, we are a fund that sits under Alphabet. And so Alphabet, as you know, most people has, have, have probably heard of, is the parent company for Google. And so um, what we do is we make investments for financial return on behalf of Alphabet. And therefore, the, the, the simple way to put it is that Alphabet provides us with the capital to invest. And with the returns that we make with our investment, we pay back Alphabet. A, a chunk of it. And so um, that structure is actually no different from Kleiner Perkins and Kleiner Perkins' is investors. So Kleiner Perkins' is limited partners. Um, the difference between the two funds, there, there are several. The first is that Kleiner Perkins is an early stage fund. And so typically they would be investing in technology businesses before they, they've even reached product market fit. So what, what a firm like Kleiner Perkins would be doing is that they'll be betting that a certain large market will exist and that a company with an idea will be able to go and bring that idea to the market, build a product, and then successfully take it to market. Um, for us, we are uh, we are a late stage fund. And so 
what that really means is that we don't typically uh, invest in companies that don't have product in the market. We don't invest in companies that don't have a business model. Typically, we would be investing in companies once they've already sold a certain amount of their product or already have a certain amount of paying users. And then once we can see that, hey, this this uh, company has semblance of a product market fit, then what we would do is we would say, hey, we believe that this product market fit will continue over a long period of time and in fact accelerate. And therefore, we would make our bets based on that assumption. Um, otherwise, I think, you know, another main difference is that Kleiner Perkins is does it, it, Kleiner Perkins isn't affiliated with a single strategic company. From our perspective, we are affiliated with Alphabet. Alphabet is our only investor. And therefore, we have a special relationship, obviously, with Alphabet and Google. And so, what that means, and I think, you know, people get confused. They think like we must be investing in companies because one day Alphabet wants to buy them or one day Google wants to, you know, do a long-term strategic partnership with them. That's not true at all. Um, we, again, we purely invest for financial return. Um, but I think what our relationship with Alphabet and Google allows us to do is one, when we, you know, identify companies that we want to invest in and we want to do more work to understand why we should invest in them. Alphabet and Google have a bunch of resources that can actually help us as investors learn more about technology, understand technology to a deeper level where we can make a lot of, you know, advantageous bets on whether a product is differentiated or not. Secondly, once we invest in a company, Alphabet and Google can also help our portfolio companies with a bunch of different, you know, challenges that companies might face when they grow. And so, for example, a lot of companies that we invest in typically have 100 to maybe 200 employees. By the time sort of, you know, five years from now, they might have, you know, 2,500, maybe even 5,000 or 10,000 employees. And, you know, that's actually a very, very difficult thing to manage. Alphabet's managed it. So Alphabet has a bunch of expertise that we can sort of bring in to help our portfolio companies with those certain challenges. And obviously, you know, that's just one flavor. There are a lot of areas where Alphabet can help out. And so um, that's our main differentiator versus funds like Kleiner Perkins. Great. Uh, you know, you talked about investing in later stage uh, ventures, and I was a little bit curious, what is that called? I, I think you told me in the past, you Capital G focuses on growth equity. And yeah. I was wondering, can you describe growth equity and how it differs from venture capital or like regular angel investing? Totally. And I think I kind of mentioned it um, in, in, in the answer to the last question where I mentioned, you know, we focus on late stage investments. And what that means is, you know, we really care about product market fit. We really care that, you know, um, a company has already found a customer base that's willing to sort of pay for their product or is willing to sort of be a loyal customer. And um, that's typically the stage where we decide that, hey, it's the company's been de-risked enough for us to go and make an investment. Now, venture capital is earlier than that. So typically what you would see is like a series A or series B, where that's the sort of lingo to identify, you know, what types of funding the company is raising. Um, venture capital would typically be earlier stage investing. And then angel investing is the earliest stage. So typically angel investing looks like, hey, there's two founders, they have an idea, and this one angel will go and give them money just to bring the idea to the market. Um, it's the number one stage at which a company generally takes some funding. The next stage would typically be venture capital. And then the stage after that would be growth equity. Cool. Now, going into a little bit about valuation, I know you talked a little bit about that with you know discounted cash flow. I was wondering, how does Capital G value a startup? Or how does it value? Yeah. How does, how, how does you know any venture capital firm uh, value a startup? Yeah. So valuation, I think, is uh, a little more 
uh, art than science when it comes to venture capital. Whereas in the public markets, it's a little bit more science um, versus art. And I think uh, the art piece here is that a lot of the times we're looking at comparable companies and how fast they're growing. And by basic finance theory, you know, you typically value a company based on either how fast they're growing or how risky they are. And so if they're growing faster, they'll be valued more. Um, if they're uh, more risky, they'd be valued less, right? Um, how you define that, obviously, is you can't necessarily look at one company and say, hey, I think your risk level is eight I w and your growth level is 10. Like, I'm going to, like, you know, value at this. That's not how it works. A lot of the times you have to compare business models and understand, hey, this is a company that looks a lot like you, where the business model is similar, where, you know, they're growing at a similar pace as you. Um, they have very similar types of customers, you know, the risk level looks very similar to you. This is what this company is valued at. Now, if we were to look at your company, we would compare you against that company and say, hey, this is what you would be valued at. Um, and so that's kind of, that, I, I think that at a high level is how we do valuation. Obviously, there's a lot more finance theory that underpins all of this. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if this is the right time to sort of go into all that because obviously a lot of it's really complicated. But uh, um, that typically is the way we, we evaluate companies. And obviously, like, valuation is not every part of an investment. Like, within an investment, you care about a lot of different things, which is how big can this company potentially be? You know, how large is the market that they're playing in? Are there any competitors in this market that we have to be aware of? Um, are there pieces where we're really differentiated and have a long-term sustainable advantage from a product or technology perspective? Um, you know, Am I efficiently getting customers? Are my customers sticking with me and not churning off to another platform? So these are all things that investors care about and evaluate before they decide to go and say, hey, this is how much we really want to pay up for it. Great. So I'm actually very curious about this. We uh, there's, there's a few different types of valuation. There's intrinsic, there's relative. And you kind of talked about relative valuation. I was right. a little bit curious if you could talk about intrinsic valuation and kind of how investors, I guess make up a number to put on a company. <laughs> totally. And I think, you know, again, there's a lot of art with the science. I think intrinsic people to typically view as obviously this is more scientific because it's baked in complete math. I think the concepts that underpin both, you know, relative valuation, intrinsic valuations are actually similar, which is to say we care about growth and we care about uh, risk and risk. Another way to look at risk is, um, is predictability and volatility. Right. So if you're less predictable as a business, like I don't know how much you're going to make next year and the year after that and the year after that, that's going to be riskier than a company where I can say, I'm sure you're going to make, you know, $10 next year, $20 next year, $40 the next year. And so um, how this plays out is that an in intrinsic valuation, what you would do is you would project forward the financials and the cash flows of a company with the theory that obviously a company is worth as much cash that it can bring in over a period of time. And then what you would do is take, say, like, obviously, a dollar of cash tomorrow is worth less than a dollar of cash today. A dollar of cash five years from now is worth less than a dollar of cash one year from now. And then what you would do is you would discount all of that back through, through a figure called the discount rate. And so that discount rate really represents the risk. The riskier company, obviously, future earnings are going to be less valuable than present earnings because you can never predict what the future is going to say. Um, a less risky company, you would be able to predict the future relatively accurately, and therefore the discount rate would be lower because that business would be perceived as less risky. And so using that method, you would you would kind of run that math and come up with an answer of saying, hey, 
this looks like the right range of valuations that we think this company should be worth. The problem with using this approach in venture capital is really just because most of the companies that we look at do not have cash. And so it's very, very difficult to project forward when they're going to be making cash. Typically, these companies don't make cash for five years. And so using the discounted cash flow method can give you wildly incorrect answers if you're making those assumptions all the way far out, which is really, really risky, right? And so from that perspective, we typically don't use that approach when it comes to sort of venture capital or growth equity investing. Great. So moving on to our our next topic, I was kind of wondering – how do what do you look for uh, in companies when you do invest? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think you know we we continue to sort of hone our views on this every day, and every company is different. Like there is not a single company without any warts. Like every company has something where you're going to be uncertain about because if you're not uncertain about anything, it just means that you're missing something. There's generally something that you're that that's not going to look as great as you expect, and so. From our perspective, we obviously look at high level for the same things as most investors look at, which is a relatively large market where this company is generally in a leader position or, you know, is in a position that's very defensible um, and they can attack a wide, wide portion of this market that they're playing in. Um, They have strong economics, which means that they can get customers relatively efficiently and be able to keep those customers for a really long period of time. Um, their growth is obviously going to be exceptional if that is going to be all be the case. And then lastly, obviously, the most important thing I think is, you know, the quality of the management team. And so um, typically those are the five or six things that we look at for an investment. With that said, not all of them are going to be perfect. And um, there's never a time when all of them are perfect. And so what we typically do is that we, we need to make bets, right? If something's not perfect, then we need to bet that it'll get better over time. So if the management team, for instance, is really young and inexperienced, we have to make the bet that they're going to grow and get more mature and obviously be better. Um, if the company is uh, playing in a market that's currently small, we need to make the bet that one day this market could be big, right? Like an example of this that is that, you know, Facebook in the year 2000, if they had been created in the year 2000, there really wasn't a large market for, for social media because the Internet wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today. But the bet is if you wanted to invest in a company like Facebook back then is to say, hey, because we see the inkling of the Internet and how people are using it, one day social media could be a huge market, which today obviously it is. And so investors get compensated by making these bets and leaning into some of the risks that they identify. Great. So you, we, talk, we talked a little bit about risk. I was wondering what, what risk truly is there when you are investing in, let's say, a startup or even later, later stage ventures? Yeah. Um, For every stage, it's different, right? Like the earlier um, you're investing into a company in its life cycle, the riskier it's going to be. Because if you're just two people working out of a garage, there are a lot of things that are unproven, right? Like you're going to have to be able to build a team. You're going to have to be able to attract the talent to build your product. Um, Your product doesn't even exist. Who's going to say that it's going to actually succeed? Um, You don't even know exactly if the market that you think you're going to be playing in is going to be the actual market that you end up attacking, right? And that's at the very formative stages of a company. Now, as you progress along, it's like, let's say your company is already making $100 million of revenue. Some of those risks go away, right? You don't have to worry about, hey, building a product. Your product already exists. People are already buying it. That's no no longer a risk. That risk goes away. Um, However, there are obviously going to be other risks, which is to say, can you continue going in this direction? Now that you're bigger, you probably have more competition. Now, you know, if you're, uh, if let's just say, um, 
your Google. Even Google is going to face increased competition over time, right? Amazon is now a Google competitor. Um, Facebook is a Google competitor. They compete for the same ad dollars, right? And so over time, you know, you have to understand like, hey, that might be a risk where some of my dollar or some of my addressable market might go towards a competitor. Um, you know, there could be more risk, which is to say like a lot of times what we see is that a company isn't necessarily growing efficiently. In fact, you know, they're spending a lot of ad dollars to try to get customers. We have to believe that one day that changes and that once customers know your brand, you don't have to spend as much on ads anymore and people naturally come to you, right? And so those are different types of risks that we kind of balance out in our stage. And then that, and it's very simply put, obviously, it's a little more sophisticated than, than this when we actually go and do our work. And then, you know, on sort of the latest, latest stage, if you're looking at private equity, a lot of the times it's like this company's already generating a lot of cash. How sustainable is this over time? Typically the company isn't growing anymore. So how do we sort of understand, you know, how fast it'll decline and whether, you know, we can bet that it declines slower than we expect. Those are all different types of risks. Great. Now, obviously when there's risk, there's return. So from your past investments, I'm a little curious if the risk is higher, will the return be higher or, and if the risk is lower, will the return be lower? Yeah. Um, and that's a great question. I think that's the concept that really underpins finance, which is, you know, for a higher level of risk, investors demand higher return. Um, and that makes sense. I think at, at a fundamental level, because, um, if there is more uncertainty and you're not getting adequate return, like let's say, you know, um, you're making a bet with someone, right? And let's say you're a hundred percent certain, um, in choice A and you're only 50% certain in choice B. And in both those bets, if you win, you get paid $2, which bet would you take? You're going to take the first one, right? Why would you want to take the second one when the first one's offering you better odds? Um, same thing as it applies to investing. If something is more risky, you'd expect to get paid out more if you're betting on that risk. Okay, great. So I actually was wondering what do you feel or what do you believe is a good expected return? Yeah. So again, every industry and every stage of investing is different, right? So typically in the public markets, if you're a really, really large public market fund, um, what you're typically looking at is the weighted average cost of capital, which, you know, it changes based on interest rates, but typically historically, you know, between eight to 10%. Um, and if you're looking at, you know, private equity, um, buy out private equity, probably 20% because they own their company. They're able to operate their own company. Obviously there are more risks because they have a bunch of debt, but you know, about 20%. And I think for, you know, us as growth equity investors, typically, you know, 25% because or 25 to even 30% typically because these companies are early on in their life cycle and, and have a little bit more risk. And if you go into like sort of very, very early stage venture capital, it's like, you know, 10 times their money is sort of what they underwrite to. Great. So going back to uh, Capital G and what they do, does Capital G diversify their investment portfolio or do they stick to one specific industry such as technology? Yeah. And uh, I think the best way to answer this is that all portfolios are, are diversified to some degree. Like you'll never find a portfolio that's just one type of investment or just one investment, right? Like, and so from a Capital G perspective, we are diversified, but I think we're a little more concentrated than some of our competitors and peers. And so the best way to think about this is that sometimes our peers, if you look at other venture funds, might make 20 investments a year. We typically make like six to eight. And so that's sort of, uh, that's sort of um, the difference. 
I think with that said, it's still very diversified. I think we invest across multiple categories, whether it be software and consumer. Um, and we've had success investing in a lot of different types of companies at different stages. And so I would still say it's fairly diversified. Got it. Now, uh, I want to go into a little bit about venture capital firms and a little bit about venture capital investors and how do they make money? I've always been curious about this. I hear about uh, investors such as Tim Draper and you know all these other venture capital investors, and I'm curious, how do they make money? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think you know the best analogy I would have is you know what if you went and bought a house, right? If you bought a house and then five years later that house's value has increased and you sell that house, you would make some money, right? And in a way, that's the more simplistic way of saying like, hey, um, you know, it's exactly what we're doing as investors. We're buying houses, but instead of buying houses, we're buying shares or ownership in a company. And that company has value, just like your house has value, right? Because, you know, as long as anything has utility, theoretically, from an economic perspective, you're creating value. Um, and value is synonymous with, you know, making money. Um, and from that perspective, you know, w- when you buy a company shares and a company grows over time, you can, ev- you can eventually sell those shares for more money than you bought it for. And that's the basics of making money. Typically, when you look at venture capital, that exit or what it's called an exit or a liquidity event. Um, what that means is that either the company that you, that you invest in got sold or that company that you invested in is now traded on the public markets, thereby making your shares liquid, you can now sell your shares in the NASDAQ, you can now sell your shares in the NYSC. Um, those are the only ways of making money. You can you can just sell your shares to someone else just like you sell your house to someone else. You just have to, It's just harder to find a buyer without it being publicly listed. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm kind of curious. Um, so how does how does it work when you go through uh, an acquisition or a sales trade when you get bought out by another company? How does an investor make money there? Do they still sell their shares or? That's right. And so um, let's say you're uh, you're Amazon, right? And let's say you know Amazon is going to buy a startup company, and let's say Amazon's going to buy that startup company for fifty million dollars. What that means is that Amazon is buying every single share that is outstanding for that company for $50 million. And therefore, if you're holding a share of that company, regardless of whether you're an investor, whether you're the CEO, whoever owns the share of the company, you're selling that share to Amazon for the price. Got it. Okay. And so once Amazon acquires all those shares, they own the company because they own 100% of the stock. Oh, I see. Okay, great. Uh, And the last question before we kind of end today's episode is, for all the students listening, high school, college, what advice would you give young students who would be interested in a career in private equity or learning more about this field of finance? Yeah, I, I think that the, the best advice that I can give, and it's not particular to just private equity or finance, is to always do things that, um, that challenge yourself and always do things where you have a chance to fail at. And... The reason is because you end up learning outsized amounts from from those type of situations. And so um, that obviously goes hand in hand with always being intellectually curious, um, always seeking out, you know, the hardest things to do, um, always, you know, putting yourself ahead in positions to sort of learn all these concepts before you really need to apply them. And so obviously be really hardworking, be very dedicated, be very goal oriented. But at the same time, don't be overly goal oriented to the point that you forget that you know, you're doing all this stuff to learn. Like you have to learn through the process of doing all this stuff 
in order to set yourself up to execute whatever job that you get in the future, whether that be in finance, whether that be an engineer. So the concepts are really the same. If you really like finance, if you really want to, you know, eventually join investment banking, then, you know, start reading right away. Start thinking about how you can get real world opportunities. Think about internships that you can challenge yourself with. Think about doing case competitions. Um, you know, do the research at your college that you're at or at the high school that you're at to find the right groups that will push you to sort of get into these roles and, and find a friend circle to support you with a lot. And all of these are really, really difficult things to do. So, you know, these are things that I think functionally could, could, could bring anyone along the path to, to, to break into the industry. Great. Thank you. Um, thank you. Victor. It was a pleasure talking to you. I enjoyed our very educational talk. Um, thank you for joining again and I hope you have a great one. Not at all. I, I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Stay safe and have a good one.